It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, Adrian Gustick. Adrian, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thanks, Laban. Great to be here. Well, we are very, very honored and blessed to have you on the show, Adrian. This has been six months in the making, really getting you on the, on the podcast, and I suppose a great place to start would be I'll let you go first and maybe let you lead with gratitude, should I? Well, sure. Thanks. First off, thanks so much for your interest in our work and being patient with me. Uh, we've been finishing two new books and, uh, and a little underwater, and so you've been very uh, gracious and patient. And so I'm excited to, uh, to chat and to offer a few ideas. As, as you mentioned, we just put out a new book called Leading with Gratitude this year. Uh, in March, what a great time to launch a book a week before the pandemic really hit in, in force. Uh, <laughs> So, but but again, probably no better time than now to be seeing really what value is being created around us and then how we can express our gratitude in really meaningful ways at work and at home. Now, for people that don't know Adrian, uh, among, he's got many feathers in his caps, but the, the thing that stuck out to me is that at some point you were ranked the number three top 30 global uh <laughs> Help me out here. Global guru for leadership. <laughs> yeah, I tried to memorize that, but it was like it was extraordinary. Yeah. Like, can you are you able to just go into a little bit of a background about how that came? I I suspect Russian meddling in the vote myself that I actually made it in the top three. But uh, we've um, my my writing partner Chester Allen and I we've we've settled in the la- in the last well, five or so years in the top ten for leadership thinkers in the world and in the top three for organizational culture thinkers in the Global Gurus. It's a research organization that studies these types of things. So so while it's a real honor, what what's really more important to us is our work that we get to do with clients around the world. Uh, we do a lot of executive coaching, a lot of speaking as, as you do yourself. We do a lot of uh, leadership workshops and we have a little company we call The Culture Works that does a lot of uh, culture change within organizations. I'd love to go back to the very beginning if I could, Adrian, because you were actually born in the UK from what I can gather, born in a town of Burton. In the UK, famous for brewing. Mm-hmm. Burton Brewery, exactly. Um, I lived in England till I was about 10 years old, moved to Canada with my family. Um, been in the States now for 30 years. This is this is now home, but but still have my um, my red British passport and still 
have a lot of connections around the world. Now, you know, for seven or eight months, nobody's climbed on many planes, but before the pandemic, we would work with organizations worldwide. Also, Chester and I, we've now, with survey partners, interviewed more than a million employees around the world, from Australia to Brazil to the UK, Germany, uh, all around the world, China, et cetera, to really find out the differences in what engages employees and cultures from, again, Rio de Janeiro to, uh, to Seoul, Korea. You able to shed any insight into what you, what you discovered? <laughs> no matter where you are in the world, there are a few top drivers, especially during crisis times. Now, what's interesting, I think, most of our research was done um, starting in the last Great Recession in 2008 and 2009. So we began studying this in earnest when the things were the worst. So we wanted to find out what those great organizations were doing differently in tough times that really made them very successful. So the first thing we found is that in tough times, the great leaders, the great organizations really amp up their people development. They really make people feel, their employees feel like they have the opportunity to do their best work and the opportunity to grow and develop. And that somebody especially cares about their, their, their well-being. typically that's the manager. Now, no matter where you are in the world, from China to Australia, that is the number one driver. This concept we called opportunity and well-being, the number one driver of engagement. Now, the number two varies from area to area based on you know, some of, the, sort of those nuances. We, we covered this in a book we called All In. One of the things we found, for instance, is a very strong driver in most Western sort of societies, Australia, US, Canada, England, et cetera, is an idea we call trust. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Now, in a tough time, trust in a manager, trust in an environment is driven by a concept of communication. The more open and honest we are, the more we're communicating every single day during a crisis like a pandemic, the more people are going to feel trust in this environment, trust in their manager, and the more they're going to feel engaged. It's just sort of a no-brainer, isn't it? And yet we find so few managers do this well. When you found out this, this information, Adrian, were you surprised at all? We've, we've had a lot of sort of counterintuitive findings that we've, we've had, especially we, we've got a now a huge database of millennials and Gen Z coming into the workforce. So, or Gen Z, as we'd say in uh, the Commonwealth countries, and what we're finding Australia, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Uh, What we're finding in this younger generation, there really are a few sort of counterintuitive findings. The first is that for older workers like myself, when you're in your fifties or you're in your sixties, autonomy is a very strong driver for most workers. In fact. Dan Pink wrote a book a little while ago called Drive, where he said autonomy is the number one driver for worker satisfaction. We find actually, when we start segmenting, it is for older workers. It's not at all for younger workers. Younger workers, many we interviewed, said autonomy. One young woman said, that's terrifying. Why would I want to work alone? I want constant feedback. I want constant coaching. So what we're finding is very different uh, engagement drivers based on, if you're a manager, the way I'm going to manage you if you're in your 50s is very, very different than if you're in your 20s. And yet, as managers, we tend to treat everybody the same. And it's dangerous because I may be driven by autonomy, and it is really one of my top drivers. 
where my young colleague who's is in her 20s, that may be bottom of her motivator list. And she's much more motivated by, we found this in the research as well, millennials are, or especially 20-somethings are three times more likely to be driven by, intrinsically driven by recognition from their manager. Whereas again, as we get older, I become more intrinsically driven. I'm, I'm much more about wanting to do a good job, leave a good legacy. So we find some really interesting differences, not only by age, also by gender, by geographic, and we're not all the same as what we find, of course. But again, too many managers think that everybody needs to be treated the same. That's really interesting, Adrian. And I'm one of the questions that sort of pops into my mind is that the millennial age or those 20-somethings you're talking about, do you think the the requirement to to have that constant feedback and the mentor and the coaching relates to like a validation seeking that we've developed, particularly with like the, the invent uh, of the of the internet? Yeah, it's a great question. And there's a lot of psychology because you can't say painting with a broad brush, everybody in their 20s is this way. But we do notice some general themes. So for example, this is a generation uh, that has grown up with much more feedback than any generation in history. Um, back in my day in, in school, um, you know, 10 years, I was 10 years old, so I had enough of the English school system to remember what it's like. Moved to Canada, saw the Canadian school system, and of course the US system where I got my uh, degree and my master's. What we find in these systems back when I was in the day, mostly you went and were lectured too. If you had to ask a question, that was rare. Um, today, young people are expected to have a voice, to challenge, to feel like their voice has merit. And they're given constant feedback. In fact, my son, who's now in his early 20s, when he was in school, every single class, you had instant feedback to the grades. Every, every test, every, every, every thing you submitted, there is constant feedback. So what we find is for younger people, feedback, recognition, whatever you want to call it, provides guidance that says, I'm on the right path. So here's where it gets really dangerous, is because of all these millennials we have interviewed say to us, if I don't get that feedback, I keep trying something new until I get it. So they may be doing something great. And in our old world sort of management style, we may go, we may think, look, I'll tell you if you're doing something wrong. Otherwise, just keep doing what you're doing. That doesn't work with younger employees who, who feel like recognition and feedback help me know I'm on the right path. And if you don't give it to me, I'll just keep trying something different until I get it right, which is counterproductive, obviously, in our organizations. I'm just thinking, you know, that, that very famous uh, study or the, the quote around that you become like the five people you spend the most time around. And if you are, you know, particularly with the lockdown, if you've been on your own for eight months and you love that autonomy, yeah. like how, if you're not getting external coaching, high performance, like where do you, where do you level up? How, how does that happen? You know, it's an interesting sort of point we're in right now because you're right, seven, eight months now, you know, Australia, you're running a little longer than the U.S. here uh, on, and it's it's just draining people. And you're right. Many people like autonomy. It's, it's funny. I, I share an office space here with an IT company and it, the IT guys, you know, the technology guys, when this hit, uh, they thought it, they got a new, a new Christmas. You know, it's like, wait a minute, I don't have to go into the office and deal with human beings. 
Uh, you know, this is the, the best thing that's ever happened. The customer service people that I would bump into thought their world had ended. I won't be able to go into every day and and deal with my my fellow colleagues and yeah. You know, and again, we're all very different. And so, you know, I love your point though about we are who we interact with. This is where a manager's job becomes even more important in this pandemic. Um, I talked to a manager recently who said, he said, I now, well, I used to do weekly check-ins with my people. They have a half an hour, all my people. And we, and I would first, the first question I would ask was, what do you want to talk about, Laban? He says, today I'm doing daily check-ins with my people. It may only be five or 10 minutes, but if I don't do that, he says, fear, uncertainty starts gripping me. And so that's what I have to do. So those five people have to be one of me. It has to be me as the manager. I have to be involved with my people's lives. And what he said was, he said, when I call my people, whether it's a Zoom call or, or on the phone, he says, the first question I ask is, how are you doing today? Because today, he says, is probably different than yesterday and the day before. In this pandemic world, it's crazy. And so he says, I try to provide that positive influence for them. Keep them on task, but keep them inspired. Keep them knowing that I care about them. I'm watching what they're doing in a really positive way, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And no, uh, it, it, it's inspiring. The um, Just a humble brag story I wanted to share with you, Adrian. I, I took on two mentees uh, from Melbourne University, which is one of the most, uh, I think it's the top 30 in the world, I think, in, in the marketing and communication uh, degrees that they were doing. One was two years, one was three years through, both from um, Chinese and Taiwanese cultures. So they weren't typically big extroverts, obviously. But like the first questions they both had for me were like, how do I, because I've got a recruitment background prior to getting into this. And I was like, how do I get a job? How do I do my CV? And I'm like, ah, 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 ah. And we just spent, we're really the last, been since uh, February of 2020 to now. So we're talking about November 2020. This is recorded um, about the art of using their voice as an instrument and getting them to to communicate and connect and use vulnerability and authenticity and like and and that gratitude to be able to really deeply connect with people. And so we haven't really focused on getting a job because now that they understand this whole process, like it's just changed their whole you know. And you as a speaker would absolutely understand this. I I'm sure. Um, and I, I suppose the feedback that I've gotten from them has been just so wonderful from a, from a manager point of view. And I was just curious to know, like, what else could I be doing to help them in their experience based on what you've learned? Oh, that's great. And that's, that's terrific that you're doing that. First off, you know, being a mentor is, is a terrific idea for all of us, putting ourselves out there and, you know, again, painting with a broad brush, I do love uh, mentoring often um, people from the Asian community because in many cases that I've met these folks, they're so open and willing to learn and to grow. And, and so good for you for, for sort of finding a niche there to, to help these folks. You know, what we typically do is when we begin executive coaching somebody or, or even just coaching somebody through a life event, what I'll typically do as well is, you know, not only am I finding out from them what they're really trying to try to accomplish in their in their lives, but also what those pain points are. One of the most important things is to think about, you know, if you're coaching, to say, okay, 
if your life were to continue on this trajectory you're on, um, what would you be missing? What would you be giving up by not challenging yourself? Because there's, you know, you know, in a way, um, we have to push ourselves past that very simple point. And you think about you starting this podcast. Well, you could have just gone keep doing what you're doing, but you've pushed yourself. You've added something, but there's a there's a trade-off with that, isn't there? Maybe you can't do as much, uh, you know, of your other work as you could. Uh, maybe you're less family time or less time for your your, your personal life. There's trade-offs, and we have to identify those. And so, if one of your coaches says, "Well, I want to get this new job," great. Now, why are you trying to get this new job? Is it is it for money? Is it for prestige? Not all those things are necessarily bad, but there's a trade-off in everything. And are you willing to pay the price? Because hopefully you're lying, lining up for them. This is the price you have to pay. And one of them, the first things you've told them is communication is vital in those big jobs. You've got to be willing to, to pay the price to be able to communicate effectively. And, and that involves giving up some things. You know, maybe they've had to give up some of their, some of their easy time to push ourselves. Yeah, the, the the main underlying driver, Adrian, was the the parents' expectations on what career path they were going to go down, and I think I, I'm almost I have apprehension at times talking to them, not really, but talking to them about this communication because if it triggers them down another pathway that's away from what mum and dad want, like from a cultural point of view, then they've got a whole other you know pile of uh, work to do. Um, but but I think you know like that fulfilment factor in doing something that you are truly, you know, in just ensconced and, and uh, you know, that you embody has just become so unbelievably important in my own life that I just want to share that with people. And I, and I suppose I want to just circle back a little bit to how did Adrian Gostick get, where did you develop this love and this interest in human beings? Yeah, this is so interesting. I'm I didn't mean to turn around for a second, but we, um, Chester and I, we wrote a book called What Motivates Me? A while back, and we created a, um, a psychological assessment with this with a team of clinical psychologists and more than 90,000 people. It's an online test of now taking this uh, assessment. And it really is interesting that and it comes back to your coachees. A couple of questions you've asked her. First off, on the coachees, and I know this has almost become a cliche now, but if we, if mom and dad pushes into engineering because, well, you're good at math, or into law because, all of our family, either lawyers or doctors or whatever it is, there's a very good chance. And often I get these people in their 30s or 40s or 50s and they're miserable doing what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. We try to find ways to get them more engaged, to get their mojo back, as we call it. Um, and it's very hard at that point. So it really is, you know, the work that you're doing at this point is really vital. Now, coming back, you know, to my question, a lot of this came because I sort of followed the same format. I, I was good at uh, writing when I was in school. I was good at business. So I ended up getting a you know, master's in leadership and undergrad in, in journalism. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll work for, a, you know, the Wall Street Journal. I'll work for, a, you know, and I did work in magazines and newspapers for a lot of time. And I got into the corporate world, ended up uh, meeting my co-author, Chester Elton, about 20 years ago. And we wrote our first book on, on leadership. Um, and I worked for this large corporation, Chester and I did. And so everything was going well. We had, you know, we had autonomy. We had mastery of, you know, we were able to kind of do what we wanted. We had, you know, we were paid well. We had interesting work. 
and we were miserable. We had all the things that all the psychologists tell you, this is what should motivate you. And yet we had this ennui of, well, you know, when's life going to get better for us? And so one day, Chester and I, we did this little experiment where we wrote on a board all the things that we really were motivated by. Uh, it was ideas like ownership. One of the biggest frustrations working for a big corporation was that we didn't own anything. It was all owned by the corporation. Um, I was really driven by creativity. Chester loved sort of recognition of the world. Um, we were both driven by having more family time, which was very rare when you worked for a big company. And so we realized that all those things that others were telling us were our motivators weren't. We were very unique. And as we, we mentioned, we developed this motivators assessment test. What we found working with this team of psychologists, there's actually 23 human motivators. Uh, there's not one or two or five. And the chances of you and I, Laban, having the top, even five of those 23 motivators in common is more than a million to one. Wow. You know, we're all very different. We're all very unique. And, and that's what we're finding as we build culture now with organizations. We used to go in and we'd say, here's how you build a culture and you do these things. And what we find now is that it's all very individual. Managers have to get to know what motivates each of their people. It's a little bit more work, but the results are profound. So which of your books are the best ones that they can read to, to master these skills? Um, I know one, Leading with Gratitude, is, is out right now. So I think I always encourage you to read the latest because it does encompass a lot of our work from what motivates me and some of the cultural work we've done. It really is sort of, you know, it becomes a keystone each time we put something new out. And this is, this is really, it's a fun book. It's also a very practical in these times. In fact, the first story in the book is about a company trying to survive in 2008 and 09 in the last Great Recession and what they did to, to push themselves through a crisis. So it's written as a leadership book and ways you lead uh, in tough times. It's, it's such a fantastic name, Adrian. And the because, you know, you mentioned earlier, like the lockdowns, I'm in Melbourne, Australia, and we have had some of the toughest lockdown laws in the, in, on the planet. And where we are, we're like we're in the epicenter right next to the CBD. And I have relied deeply on daily gratitude for the wonderful blessings in my life to help me stop from going postal over here. And, and I, like, I would like to think that I'm a relatively well put together individual. And I know a lot of people were struggling because they were caught up in the negativity and, the, and focusing on, on the bad stuff and, you know, woe is me. And you just got to take that step back. And so that's, that's one of the, 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 the words that just struck me with that book. Uh, because for people listening, Adrian and, and his uh, partner, business partner, Chester Elton, are best-selling authors across the New York Times. And, you know, I don't know how many, how many books you've sold, but it's, we're talking a lot of books over here. So they know what they're talking about, I suppose, is the point. But the other thing that's come in is this, this gratitude and empathy and mindfulness uh, combination that's, yeah. that's a few people are doing. And a, and a friend of mine, Hugh Van Kylenberg over here, who's someone that I would love to introduce you to, he's got this project, uh, well, it's called the Resilience Project. It's been running for about eight or nine years now, doing some 
phenomenal work. Started out as a, high, a, pr- a primary school and high school teacher and went to India and, and saw these kids that had zero, but how mm-hmm. happy they were and they were just grateful for the thing. So it ties in beautifully with what you're doing. And I think the the more that we can, you know, get into that habit of practicing, you know, you know what, I've got food on my belly, I've got a shirt on my back. Like what else What else do I need? Is there anything else that, you, that you'd want to tie into that? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great point. I love the work that uh, you're talking about there with resilience. Um, so many things that you just touched on there that are so important. First off, uh, by the way, uh, I was in Melbourne, uh, I think it was a year ago. I uh, love Melbourne. My uh, my best friend from high school just actually graduated from a, with a PhD from Melbourne University with uh, uh, in soil sciences. So uh, no, wow. I, got, I got to know Melbourne very, you know, very well for at least a few days when I was there and love the Love the city, love the people. Uh, what a you know, what a great uh, place to be from. So now, with that said, uh, about you know, kind of this idea of lockdown and what we're feeling right now is a lot of. And I know I'm I'm saying the obvious. We're feeling a lot of uncertainty. Um, we're going into you know eight months now in the dark. We don't know when's this going to end. Is this going to you know? Is this going to be tomorrow? Is this going to be a year from now? And is it end? It's going to peter out. Is it going to be a, you know, they give me the shot and I'm better now. So there's just so much uncertainty. And of course, as we humans, uncertainty is basically treated the same in the body as, as a threat. Uh, it, it, you know, our limbic system gets enacted. And basically, so for eight months, we've been having these little trauma. And some of us handle it better than others. Some have more built-in resilience and we don't exactly know why. Some people are able to, to, to manage this. And it's nothing to do with our, with our childhoods or upbringings. It's just some people are able to fight it more. But the point of your friends, the Resilience Project, is that what we find in psychology is that we can't actually build resilience within ourselves. You know, we can focus a little bit more on the presence, what, present, what we can control today. Uh, we can find people to talk with us about and create communities. You know, we can build, we can do so many of these things. So with anxiety raging right now with stress and worry on the, on, you know, just at uncontrollable levels in some cases, we have to bring this back to more great gratitude. Um, Anxiety and gratitude cannot exist in our minds at the same time. So if I'm thinking about all the things that you have done for me, and I am grateful for all that you have added to me, um, all of a sudden, my anxiety levels are going down because I'm expressing that to you. And in return, you're feeling like somebody is noticing the good work you're doing and you're starting to be buoyed up. So what we find is this is the low hanging fruit. You know, gratitude is one of those things that we can do to help our own minds as well as help those around us. Yeah, it's brilliant, Adrian. And I'll give you a great example of something that I, because I've been blessed with this 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 knowledge from being around these individuals my um to protect their anonymity a family member i I can't say any more details attempted to take their own life about a month ago and they they live in they live in melbourne and it was more a cry for help than anything else there's no, no history of prior mental health but combination of lots of little things built up but when i went to visit this this individual I was like, what am I going to talk to them about, right? And then I just and I just I just listened for a little bit 
And, and you know, because I thought that was really important. There was no judgment or anything. But then I said, well, look, would you be interested in, in trying a little wee thought experiment? And they were like, yeah. So we started, I said, tell me what you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. And we went through and they were able to list eventually about 10 or 11 things. And I just said, how do you feel? Mm-hmm. And they were like, I feel normal again. <laughs> and, That's great. And uh, like... And but their their improvement um, has been dramatic. Now I'm not attributing it purely down to that, but we've been doing a bit more of that, and it's just extraordinary to watch. This is someone mm. in their seventies, like mm. you know, and uh, just a, a, the power of what you're talking about. You it's, you're unable to have the simultaneous negative and, and positive thoughts, and it's just so powerful. And uh, the sooner mm. that people can can realize this and have it in their arsenal, you know, it's just amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and what a what a first off, what a great story! Well, you know, good for you. Bless your heart for 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 doing that for your for your family member to be able to to be there for them and to to make their mind turn help turn their minds toward more, more positivity. You're right; it's not a one time. Oh, I'm fixed. No, this is a process. But first off, you show that somebody cares. Secondly, you help them see that there is a more positive way of, of seeing where we're at right now. So, and I love that. There, you know, the last, the last third of the book, Leading with Gratitude, we spent on bringing this home. You know, a lot of it was talking about leadership, but the other part, third of the book, was about how we bring this home. I'm, I'm doing some executive coaching right now with the administrator of a big hospital system. And he had to admit to me, you know, with this COVID world, he says, I'm giving my best self at work. By the time I get home, I got nothing. And so he said, what I realized was I need to do, do more with my family. So one of the things that I love he's done this, he said, uh, he says, you know, I'd sit down at the dinner table with the, with the kids and the wife and he'd say, uh, so uh, how was everybody's day? Fine. What'd you do today? Nothing. You know, you know, the usual dinner conversation, right? He said, so I, I shook it up and I brought gratitude onto the table. And I said, we're going to go around the table and everybody's going to say something that happened to them that they're grateful for today. And then secondly, I want you to say who you're grateful for who's not at the table and why. And finally, who are you grateful for who's at the table who hasn't been thanked yet? He said, so we started going around and first few times my kids crazy hated it. They thought it was the stupidest thing they had ever done. He says, within a couple of weeks, they were inviting their friends to come over. You've got to do this. Uh, really get your head in the right place, man. And uh, he says, now it's part of who we are. You know, what are you grateful for that happened today? Who are you grateful for who's not at the table? Who are you grateful for who's at the table? Simple little questions, but it's just just what you were talking about, Leibon. You know, bringing our minds to a more positive place. That's uh, so good. I might steal that one, Adrian. And, yeah. and, and I'll tell you, I'll share something secret with you, right? Just between you, me, and all the listeners. I felt really good after going through that exercise. I got a lot more out of it, I think, than than the family member. So mm-hmm. it's I, like I've almost, I, I have this almost shameless uh, mm-hmm. uh, love and abundance thing because I get mm-hmm. so much back out of it. But I don't think it's really selfish, is it? No, it's not. And as and it's also the right thing to do. So, you know, a lot of our work is with managers, with leaders, and we try to help them understand is that the more you get out of this myopic world of you're focusing on your tasks and your your policies, your procedures, and more you you worry about the people in your care, 
the more you're going to just feel better and your more your organization is going to do better. And the more, again, coming to your personal life, the more that your loved ones are going to thrive as well. Adrian, do you have a, a proudest client that you've been able to totally transform and turn around by using a lot of your and, and uh, Chester's principles? You know, we've, we've had a chance to work with a lot of really amazing organizations over the years. Um, what's interesting is typically when somebody calls us in, uh, they're really a good organization that wants to either get better or a really great organization that wants to keep challenging themselves and push themselves. Like sometimes people say, oh, tell me about the really diseased organizations that brought you in, those, those really lousy ones. And the point is, they never call. They never will call because they don't get it, right? They're so focused on the wrong things that they will never worry about their culture or their people. Uh, they worry about the bottom line and are we growing sales and are we, you know, all these, you know, processes and procedures and all these things. They just don't get it. So we've had, really had some amazing, you know, organizations we've worked with. Um, here in the U.S., there's an organization we've worked with lately called Texas Roadhouse. Uh, they have 60,000 employees. It's a restaurant chain, hundreds of locations around the U.S. Now, what's interesting for them is that after the pandemic hit here in the U.S., uh, within about three weeks, four million U.S. employees in uh, restaurants were laid off. They lost their jobs. And yet Texas Roadhouse started hiring a lot of those people. Um, they had never done more than 5% of their businesses takeout, uh, carryout. And yet they went from 5% to 100% takeout. They were back in the black in four weeks. And they did a lot of really amazing things. So we work with their CEO, Kent Taylor. And one of the things that Kent told me, he says, you know, the first, when this pandemic hit and nobody was going into restaurants, as you know, uh, he said, we realized we had to do things in a new way. So he says, I started calling my crazies. He says, because you've got rule followers and those people are really important when, uh, when things are good. You want rule followers, right? They do everything right. He says, but when something, a crisis hits, your rule followers become a little like a deer in the headlights. They don't know what to do. He says, so I started calling my crazies, those people who are, I knew were already breaking the rules out there. And they were. Uh, he says, we started to end up selling fresh cut steaks out of, our, out, of our, out of our restaurants. We started doing farmer's markets. We started doing all these crazy things that were, came from my, my crazies. And he said, then I would pair up a crazy with what I called a puppy, somebody who was a rule follower, but was afraid to get off the porch. So the crazies would pull the, the, the puppies off the porch so the different stores would work together. And he said, you know, again, remarkable. Their stock over the uh, pandemic has increased 110% uh, from 30 bucks to over 70. Why? Because they actually listen to their employee voices and they've really gone a long way to, to really embracing sort of that, that breaking of the status quo in tough times. I just thought of a really amazing business idea that you may not have thought of between you and Chester. What about setting up a an investment fund that literally just recommends all of the clients that you've had access to that you that you've you know had good success with? We, you know, it's funny, and I this uh, nobody will ever believe this, but I saw I, every time I go into a public company and and we do we work with them, I buy their stock. 
And they, I always buy it beforehand. And so there's no impropriety of, of insider trading or anything like that. Yeah, and yeah, make yeah. sure that I hold it until we're done. But over the last two years, that, that fund has appreciated over 100% a year. And the reason is not because of our brilliance. We, we're, we're trying to turn a battleship in many cases. But what it tells me when I'm asked to go in is this organization actually cares about its people. And they're going to lead by this idea of culture first, get our people happy, and they will take care of the rest. They'll, they'll be innovative. They'll take care of customers, et cetera. So I've had tremendous success with that, with that fund for that very reason is that I, it's a clue that this organization really gets it. It's such a great uh, buy-in uh, from you, like to the client as well. Like, you know, we are investing. We, we, we back ourselves like to the point where we're putting our money where our mouth is literally. I think that's such a powerful selling tool. And I, and I can see I can see why you attract these these types of clients. I suppose I'm curious to know, Adrian, like did it take you a while and a few ups and downs to figure out this, you know, pitching to a particular caliber client? That's an interesting question. It is so true because um, we 20 years ago when we started this, you're right. You know, we're all we're all pitching our services in a way, but but you can't think about it that way. You have to think about it as what can I do to help? Because it has to be a very good conversation at the beginning with a client where we say, okay, what are you looking to accomplish here? And in many cases, we'll say, look, we're not the right people to come in. Many times they'll say, look, I just want somebody to come in and and kick butt and get my people working and get them charged up. It's like, look, that's not what we do. We're not here to, to you know, to rev up there. You can hire one of the, you know, the stunt pilots or somebody like that or, or you know, a professional athlete or somebody to come in and rah-rah. That's not what we do. But when we find out a good match is where somebody says, we're looking to enhance our culture. We're looking to, to really build engagement in our people so that they really care about our values they really understand the behaviors we're trying to drive. And what we want is somebody maybe to inculcate that within our culture and help us do that. Great. So now we've got a good alignment. And really, it comes down to, you know, not pitching yourself as much as, and this is good, you know, I think for all of us who try to sell anything, as much as understanding their pain point and how we can address that very honestly, because you know, these are these are CEOs typically we're dealing with, and they'll see through you if you're if you're faking it. Yeah. You have to be able to say, no, no, this is this is my my sweet spot. I can help you with this, but I can't help you with this, this, or this. But I can I can point you to the right people who can help over there. It's something that I've been grappling with a little bit, Adrian, um, as a relatively new speaker and a coach. And I'm still was finding out exactly what my sweet spot is, and and it's so funny, you know. You talk about like the 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 best engagements and the the best outcomes coaching wise I've had. Basically, I haven't had to sell anything, no. and they they're willing to pay basically whatever. And it's um, that confidence that you develop in yourself, I suppose, because I'm at a point now with with the stuff that I focus on. And just to give you some background. Like over the last five years, I've been able to successfully quit drinking. I was an alcoholic, gambling, like drug use, philandering, limiting, you know, self-belief and negative self-talk. 
and I've even been able to lose 60 pounds of weight in the process. And, uh, and I've even just recently like quit sugar, like, like proper, like black coffee is my, literally my only vice at the moment. You haven't got anything left, do you? Well, I, this is the thing. Like, you know, are we supposed to have these? And, I, and I've become addicted to things like, you know, distance running, ultra running, whatever you want to call it, and, and uh, you know, feeling good and, and spreading this message. And um, I, I know now, particularly off the back of the podcast, because we've recorded, this is the 63rd podcast I've recorded since late April. Mm-hmm. out of necessity and it's been the, a life-changing experience for me personally because I get to talk to people like you, people at the top of their game and I've come to realize that I can add a lot of value to these people's lives, people that are already here and and going back to that, you know, you become the sum of the five people you spend the time around. It's given me the confidence to to um, believe in what I'm able to, to coach and talk to people about. So for that, I forget the point of what I was talking about but that's that's something that I'm so grateful for, um, and I, but I'm still working out that balance about how to pitch the work at times. Sometimes it's really effortless. Other times it's like, ah, what am I doing? <laughs> oh, good for you. First off, congratulations on all those life changes. Uh, most of us can tackle one thing at a time. You've, you've done all those, and so that says a lot about you and how passionate you are to not only help yourself, but then to help others. So so first off, you know, that's amazing. Um, Thanks. You know, Typically, when we work with a leader, what we typically are saying is, let's tackle one or two things. And because we're so busy and we have we have so many other things. So what you're doing with the podcast, I think, is really admirable as well, because you're keeping that steady flow of positivity coming in. You know, unfortunately, I don't know if you've heard about this crazy election we had going on here in the U.S. <laughs> right now. And I don't know when we'll air, but uh, hopefully we'll have a decision by the time this airs. But but what's really interesting is the negativity that's coming into all of our lives. The first thing we do every day is we, we pull out our phones and we scroll down. We do this, this doom scrolling to see, oh, my gosh, is my guy not going to make it anymore? And we start panicking. And and um, what we need to do is turn the, and, and, and start a day with a podcast like yours. Start with positivity that's coming in and set ourselves a, a time. Okay, from 11 to 12, my lunch break, whatever. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll look at the news, but that's it. I'm not gonna obsess over this all day long. I'm certainly not gonna do it first thing in the day or last thing at night and bring this negativity into my sleep or into my my beginning of my day. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really great point, Adrian. And, you know, you talk about the... Uh, the the anxiety and the negativity like yeah, from a biological point of view when you when you're watching this doom the doom scrolling or whatever you trigger a cortisol response right and if you're if you're you know out of shape and you're drinking too much coffee if you're sensitive to caffeine and you're doom scrolling and you you know you're not getting on with your partner or whatever and the kids are giving you grief or whatever like this is the stuff this is the high stress levels that can exacerbate a lot of those negative issues that you're talking about um, which can be alleviated temporarily by this this gratitude that you that you you know so beautifully uh, sharing in this in this amazing book. So um, yeah, I'm I'm a massive advocate, and and I think Adrian, uh, I, I'd love to even knock caffeine on the head at some point in the future. I did have six weeks off earlier this year. First four days were like hell. I don't know if you are you a coffee drinker. 
No, but I'll have a diet Coke or Pepsi. Yeah, in the in the mornings. Yeah, most yeah. most mornings. Have you ever tried yeah. to give it up? Oh yeah, and it, you're right. It's it's brutal to give it up. Yeah, it's um it's really nice to 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 give it up to see what kind of impact it has when it's leaving your body. It's like yeah. exercising the demon. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, had, I had massive lower back pain and like brain fog and irritability. It was brutal. First time in oh. two years since I've given up. But it's, it's good to know that I can do it, but I just I enjoy it too much. <laughs> and it's my <laughs> only vice, as I say at this point. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, great. Um, I'm very conscious of your time. You, uh, thankfully for us, for COVID, you've been grounded and otherwise you'd be on a plane somewhere. Is there anything that you'd like to to leave us with before we wrap this bad boy up? Well, and thanks first off for you know your very insightful questions and and it's been a really fun interview. So I want to appreciate and everybody listening through. Um, you know, this is a lot of your time and as well. So I think one of the last things I would say is that look, this is this idea of gratitude. It's not just about saying thank you more to people. It's just what you did with your family member. It's going and seeing them really who they are, the value that they bring to your place of work or to your life. Um, really, that's what gratitude is all about. It's very different than, than just appreciation. Gratitude is first and foremost about seeing and then about expressing your gratitude or your thanks in a very specific way that is meaningful to a person. Because how you express your thanks to me as a, you know, a little bit of an introvert and uh, who loves autonomy and loves using my creativity, et cetera, is going to be very different from perhaps you, Laban, who may be more driven by, by socializing and, and teams and, and sort of getting out there. We have to get to know each of the people in our care, whether family or whether those we work with. And gratitude really is one of those simple things that we can master to make us a, a better leader and a better person. Can't get really more profound than that, I don't think. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the wonderful, the fabulous, Mr. Adrian Gostick. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Laban. Very kind of you to have me on. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.